Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to New Business Paradigms, conscious commentary on business and society. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. This podcast is designed to give the Academy's outlook on the economic, political, and ecological factors that affect our listeners. The first 15 minutes of the show today will be an in-depth analysis of current political trends that are crucial to understanding our global and domestic political situation. Please take the time to listen closely and rewind and listen again. This is an important explanation to absorb. In the lightning round today, we will discuss ways to protect your investments, including our outlook for inflation and energy prices. But first, Ronaldo, let's talk about your experience at the Inclusive Capitalism Conference and how you see it tying into the political trends we're seeing, and then we'll turn to other international news. Thanks, Matt. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Um, this this next little piece is going to be about 15 minutes long, and um, I want to urge people, if they want to take notes, take notes, but they may want to just come back to our website in the next day or so when we post this show and listen to this again, because I'm going to cover some really, really fascinating global observations, and I'd like people to be able to follow them when I'm talking about them, but then to go back and refresh and and look at them, because the implications of what I'm about to say are quite remarkable. First of all... um, I was very privileged recently to attend a conference in London a little over 10 days ago. It was an amazing conference. The name of the conference was called Inclusive Capitalism. And in a group of 300 people, we were all individually invited to come, uh, specifically because the 300 of us were the ones they wanted in the room. Uh, And I was representing, uh, I was one of the very few representatives of of the NGO community, meaning the non-governmental organizations. Everyone else, for the most part, in the room was the, a participant, a major participant in the international global financial system. And I was very honored that the World Business Academy was thought to be an essential player in that group. The meeting was convened by Lady Rothschild and the, city, the, the mayor of the city of London. It was also um, co-sponsored by the Prince of Wales Trust and by um, The Economist magazine. Uh, There was a rule in place which said that nobody could talk about what individuals said there. It's called the Chatham House Rules, except for the speech Christiane Legrand gave, which I will refer to. And to paraphrase the speeches that were given by His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, Prince Charles spoke for about 35 minutes. Uh, Christiane Legrand spoke for about 40 minutes. Uh, President Bill Clinton spoke for well over 45 minutes. Uh, and uh, Larry Summers, former Secretary of Treasury, spoke for over an hour, um, and uh, the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carey, spoke for about 40 minutes. And in between, there were these fascinating panels. The meeting started at 8.30 in the morning, and it went till, uh very late at night. 
Now, I, I'm sharing that, that, that lineup with you. Can you imagine being in a room with 300 people where the speakers that day are Prince Charles, Bill Clinton, Christian Legrand, Mark Carey, Larry Summers, and, and the like? And uh, I, I just found it an astounding thing to be present at. But here was why I'm, I'm sharing it with you. At the opening of the meeting, um, Lady Rothschild looked around the room and said, I want to thank each of you for coming. It's extremely important you're here for what you're about to, to participate in. We are going to have privacy, so you'll feel free to discuss whatever you want. But as we start this meeting, you need to know that there's over $30 trillion sitting in this room today. Now, to give you some perspective, $30 trillion is roughly half of the global GDP. It's an awesome amount of money. The only way you can get $30 trillion in the room is the way they did it, which is to have the heads of the sovereign wealth funds like Norway and um, um, uh, China and uh, every conceivable sovereign wealth fund that is large uh, was there. I mean, uh, it was an astounding array of wealth in, in, in the private capital system. I mean, the sovereign wealth of, fund of Singapore was there. I mean, it just went on and on. The, the, the most well-regarded pension fund in the, in the nation of Canada, that, that the Ontario Teachers Fund, was represented heavily there. So there was an amazing group of institutional players. Now let me tell you what the conference was about. Christian Legrand read from Das Kapital by Karl Marx, in which she said, Marx wrote, and he did, that the seeds of capitalism's destruction is sown by the fact that the rich will choose to get richer, and as they continue to do, the poor will get poorer until ultimately the gap becomes so wild, wide that you have class warfare. She said we are on the verge of that type of a potential collapse. Now, when you talk to people with $30 trillion and you use words like collapse, you are intending to get their serious attention. And what she said was, it is our job in this room to begin really with extraordinary energy now to prove that Karl Marx is wrong, that capitalism will not collapse of its own weight. She said, however, for us to do that, we must begin to close the gap between the rich and poor. She looked around the room and said, everybody here is plenty rich. And there's no reason you won't get richer. But what you have to do is you have to bring everybody else along with you so the gap between rich and poor starts to close, even if you yourself start continue to get richer in the process. And you, out there in the seats, who represent $30 trillion, you have the most to lose if we don't fix the system, the most to gain if we do. So it's up to you to fix the system. What are the three things we have to do? We have to close the gap between rich and poor, and we have to do that immediately because the populations of the Western democracies are on the verge of revolt. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. The second thing she said is we must absolutely complete the reform of the banking system, which led to the Great Recession, which has not been adequately reformed yet, which is still not reformed, and we will complete that by November of this year, she promised. And she said, I have an agreement between the International Monetary Fund, which she runs, the Bank of England, who the governor of the Bank of England spoke at the end of the day to confirm his assent, and by the European Community Bank, that we shall impose banking standards beyond Basel III regulation, and we'll do that by November of this year. Interesting to note, she did not mention the Fed in that list, and she doesn't think she has to, because if the ECB, the European Community Bank, and the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the Bank of England 
all agree to these new standards, every major bank in the world will have to go along whether they like it or not, and people with arrogance like Jamie Dimon notwithstanding. So we see this issue of bank reform as critical. And by early the following year, we will end the threat of too big to fail. We have developed a system for unwinding banks that need to be unwound without it ending up as a taxpayer burden, and those regulations will be in place shortly as well. So my message to you in the room, she said, was further resistance by the banks would be futile. Actually, it would be counterproductive. So what she was doing is she was saying to the people who are the principal share owners of the banks and the principal depositors of the banks, you need to get the banks to come in line and start behaving, and we're going to put the regulations so you're better off if you do than if you don't. Number two, she said that what we have to do, number three, rather, so close the gap between rich and poor, reform the banking system, including too big to fail. And number three, we have got to deal with climate change. And she went on to say that climate change is a far bigger crisis than people are reporting in the press. Far bigger things are happening all over the globe. It's a huge destabilizing influence. And she went on to say every single decision any corporation makes from this point forward must have climate change as part of its of its uh, calibration, of its calculation. Interestingly, within 10 days after that statement, less than 10 days, about a week later, Lloyd's of London, the first insurance company, and one of the most prominent in the world, said that they will not write another policy again ever where climate change is not taken into consideration as a factor. That's how fast it works when the head of the IMF warns the business community on what it needs to do. Now, that is an astounding set of remarks to deliver to the 300 wealthiest people on the planet. So this is the top one-tenth of one percent. As you all know from listening to these podcasts, this is the Academy's agenda and has been since 1986. So I was thrilled to be sitting in the seats, hearing this, and being told by people at the breaks, part of my job was to continue to stir the change and hold that change going between annual meetings because we've decided to have the meeting again in a year on inclusive capitalism which is what the Academy stands for. And I can assure you, ladies and gentlemen, give us your support. We will meet that challenge. The most powerful people on the planet are now our allies, and we shall be victorious, to paraphrase Winston Churchill. But I said I would come back to this comment about the the populations of the Western democracies are virtually on the edge of revolt. I want to tell you that that speech that Christian Legrand gave occurred one day after the results of the European parliamentary elections. And those elections the day before revealed the following things. One, the nation of France overwhelmingly decided to back an extremely right-wing party by, uh, headed up by a woman named Le Pen, which was with, with, with a, an anti-European agenda. And that party was uh, elected enormous numbers of people to the European Parliament with the express purpose of shutting down the European Parliament, of getting out of the European Union. Sounds like the Tea Party in America, doesn't it? Let's keep going. In England, uh, an outlier third party, which had never really registered as a significant party, ended up with more votes than either of the two major parties with the same agenda, get, them out of, get, get England out of the European Union uh, and, and basically pull up the drawbridge. There's a referendum, which is going to occur next year in England, which the day after the elections, the uh, Prime Minister of England basically declared that he was concerned that the English would vote to leave the European Union. I believe the parliamentary elections was the reason he made that statement. In addition, the nation, the, 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 the country of Scotland 
has a, a referendum scheduled. I think it's for later this year, actually, or very early next year. And that referendum is to see whether Scotland wants to leave the United Kingdom. So the United Kingdom is thinking of leaving Europe, and Scotland's going to be leaving the United Kingdom. So we're seeing a dissipation, a breakdown of government structures. Now, here's where it gets interesting for people in the United States. In the United States, Eric Cantor, two days ago, lost in a primary. So in the history of the United States Congress, we've had a majority leader since the late 1800s, never has a majority leader of the Congress ever been defeated in a primary. They've lost sometimes in the general election, Tip O'Neill being a famous example, but never in a primary. Now, what's fascinating about that is Eric Cantor lost because he, the, the candidate brat who ran to the right of him is a Tea Party candidate. But Eric Cantor came to power as part of the Tea Party. He helped create it 14 years ago. So what happened is, and who showed up to fan the flames of discontent in his so-called safe Republican district? Laura Ingram, the famous talk show right-wing radio person, who's made millions, tens of millions of dollars of profits, fanning the flames of discontent all over the, all over the country, just as Rush Limbaugh has. He's become an extraordinarily wealthy guy. And this is for a guy who's you know, an admitted druggie. He became an extraordinarily wealthy guy by fanning the flames of discontent that Christian Legrand was talking about when she was looking at France, looking at England, looking at Scotland. And now in the U.S. we have our own version of it. So Eric Cantor went from 34% like win in his own pollster, said he would win by 34 points, to a loss of 11% literally within a week. What happened? The flames of discontent were far bigger than just the immigration issue. And I'm going to come back to that in a moment because my analysis of why Cantor lost is very different than anything you've read or heard about up until now. But the key point I want to make is that Cantor being beaten in that primary by such a significant amount, by forces he did not foresee, reminds me of the French Revolution. And it reminds me of a guy named Robespierre. Robespierre was actually one of the leaders of the French Revolution who instigated the public into revolt against the crown, thinking it would create a directorate of which he would be the dominant player, and therefore he would be his rise to power. That's exactly what Eric Cantor tried to do in the Republican Party. So much so he challenged, challenged John Boehner, even as the Speaker could not, get his, could not get his votes together. Make no doubt about it. Eric Cantor is a Tea Partier. He's very right-wing. There's nothing moderate about Eric Cantor. And what he tried to do was to be all things to all people, and in the process... He ended up with no base anywhere. So when they went to the polls on election day, there was no one to vote for Eric Cantor because Eric Cantor didn't stand for anything. He didn't stand for the far right. He didn't stand for the far left. He stood for the fact that Eric Cantor wanted to get reelected so he could become Speaker of the House, and he thought he was a pretty face that could get there. The young guns, as he called himself. And by the way, there was a poll done, independent poll done, a week before the election, which showed that 64% of Virginia voters in his district thought he'd done a bad job representing them. That's why Eric Cantor lost. Now, Back to Robespierre. So Robespierre, who fanned the flames of civilian discontent, creating the French Revolution, ended up, not too long thereafter, being guillotined, having his head chopped off as the revolution turned on him, and turned on its other leadership, by the way. If you will, in this metaphor of the French Revolution, where I believe Eric Cantor is Robespierre in modern day, there was a woman named Madame Lafarge who sat there knitting at the base of the guillotine saying, 
guillotine, guillotine, because everybody that came up on the stage, she wanted to kill him. It was, her goal was to be disruptive. To me, in this little morality play, Laura Ingram is Madame Lafarge. She's willing to go say guillotine anybody as long as it can add to her radio base and to her personal net worth. So I believe the rapid, the rabid right-wing talk radio machine, which has become incredibly wealthy and incredibly powerful in this country, and has become incredibly influential, way beyond anything that, that, that is merited, they are in evidence in, in, in the example be Laura Ingram and the fact that she turned up a month ago and said, guillotine Eric Cantor, let's get rid of him. And in a base where he had 64% of his own constituents who didn't like him, that's why Eric Cantor was defeated, not immigration reform. In fact, if you look at the polls that were done in the week leading up to the election, 72% of Eric Cantor's, by one poll, 72% of Eric Cantor's constituents were in favor of immigration reform. Now, you didn't hear that on the public news. And the reason he did it is because the news, quote-unquote, in our country today, in the U.S., is not providing news. They're providing infotainment, entertainment disguised as news. So you didn't read about the fact that immigration is not the reason that Eric Cantor lost. And, in fact, that's probably going to do the Democrats a lot of good that that story gets out because it will keep the Republicans even more anti-immigration, which come the elections in 2016 and, well, 2014 in November and again in 2016, means that the Hispanic vote only has one place to go and they'd better get there fast if they want immigration reform, and that's to the Democratic Party. So the Republicans have just done something really, really bad to themselves for future national elections. Given how gerrymandered districts are because of the last census, when the Republicans control the redistricting, I don't expect you're going to see massive changes in the Congress, although you could. You could see a revolt. And that's what Christiane Legrand was warning us at the Inclusive Capitalism Conference. She quoted a statistic. She said, in the Western industrial nations, only 17% of the populations trusted the financial system and trusted that, that their, their interests were being uh, well taken care of. And what she said was, a system that's only supported by 17%, where that much trust has evaporated, is a system which cannot sustain itself. It will fall. It will crumble. Now, I'd like to leave this thought today with, with this. What happened to Eric Cantor, the modern-day Robespierre? And if you haven't read The Tale of Two Cities, I urge you to do so. What happened to Eric Cantor, what happened to the uh, centrists in France, in England, Scotland, is the same phenomenon, and it's global, because we are a global people. We are, a one, we are one people. And that phenomenon is this. If we in the business and financial community don't do our job to start serving the needs of society as we were supposed to, if we continue to pursue greed at any cost, if we continue to pursue policies which are only going to enrich the richer at the expense of the, of the middle class and everyone else, we will have a systemic collapse of civilization as we know it. And ladies and gentlemen, i got bad news for you. It isn't something that's going to happen in 100 years. It's going to happen within the next 50 or less. And some people think it could happen within 25 years. Now, I want you to, I want you to think about that as we go through the rest of this hour, because I want us to all think, if that's really what we're facing, it's time for us to ask not what will you do, but what will I do. I love that line by President Kennedy. Do not ask what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And I just like to change it to say, ask not 
what human civilization can do for you. Ask what you can do for human civilization. Join us in the academy any way that you can and support us taking the role we need to keep taking so that this outcome will be the one you want, not the one you fear. That's That was my observation. Thanks, Matt, for uh, the time to give it. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate your analysis, Ronaldo. Um, and on that note about joining our efforts, uh, one important way you can join with us is to actually make a financial contribution. We started an associate member level uh, that is just $25 a month, but will go a long way as we build a base of supporters and, and continue to enroll associate members to help fund uh, this program and the other activities of the World Business Academy. Uh, if you'd like more information about the associate membership, please visit our website, and on the right side of the page, there's a link that says Become a Member. So go to worldbusiness.org and click on the Become a Member link, and you'll find out more about that. Uh, also, if you have any questions, please email into info at worldbusiness.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at worldbusiness.org, and we'll be happy to help you. Uh, your support is extremely important uh, to helping us spread the word about this. You know, This is the only place you get unique analysis that combines politics, uh, business, and the implications of the ecological collapse that we're looking at and trying to uh, avoid. So if you if you believe in the future of hum human civilization and want to help us get the message out, we'd really appreciate your support. Um, Ronaldo, is there anything, anything you want to say about membership? No, just that um, it, 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 it's it's like it's real simple. I, I can only do what I can do by myself, but uh, as part of a team, which includes everybody who's listening to this. Uh, podcast, and by the way, I hope you're sharing this podcast with other people. I hope you're giving people an opportunity to hear an alternative point of view, which has a lot more rational, fundamental sense to it than, than most of what's out there in, in uh, the so-called um, news media. Uh, I hope you're sharing it. I hope you're willing to put up at least 25 bucks a month to keep us going so that I'll be in that room again next year with those type of luminaries advocating for the policies which they are now echoing. Uh, and, and helping to change the world, which really needs to be changed quickly. I'd like to say we have a limited amount of time on our hands, but ladies and gentlemen, we don't. We're running very short of time now. And that's true both from a climate change point of view. It's, too, it's true from the point of view of the amount of systemic collapse. You know, uh, I, I'd like to just talk for a second about Iraq, Matt. So um, I, I did, were you able to send that article out to people with the show's announcement today? The, the article will be in the show notes that we release at, with the podcast today. Okay. So the article I'm referring to, folks, is an article I wrote in 2007, so seven years ago, actually more than seven years ago now, and it was entitled Iraq, Exit from a Quagmire. And in it I quoted the first king of Iraq in 1932, Faisal I, in which he said, In this regard, with my heart filled with sadness, I have to say that it is my belief that there is no Iraqi people inside Iraq. There are only diverse groups with no national sentiments. I quoted that, and in the article I went on to explain that there's no such thing as the country of Iraq. It was created basically by a, a whim of Winston Churchill on a map uh, of the region, which he'd actually never been to at that point, for, for the convenience of where to put oiling stations for the British Navy. And in it I said in the article that there are basically three countries in Iraq, Kurdistan, Shiistan, and Sunnistan. And I said, as soon as the U.S. realizes this, they'll create 
a division of these three countries from Iraq, so it'll go back to where it was, and each one will be happy living on its own, and you won't have an internecine warfare that would kill each other off. That has happened indirectly. Kurdistan now exists, and it's safe. It's got major oil companies all over the place. It's growing larger every day. It just took over the city of Kir, uh, uh, Kirkuk, which it's wanted for three or four decades. And it's got a stable army. It's got a stable civilian structure. It's got a two-party system. It's democratic. It's perfectly stable. And it's got a big chunk of Syria, which it's claiming, by the way, which it hasn't invaded yet, but it's got it. It's got a big chunk of uh, Turkey, which it wants to claim, which it has not physically claimed yet, but could. And it's got a big, big chunk of Iraq and a tiny bit of Syria. Now, and Iran also, right? I said Iran, yeah. It's got, a bit of, okay. it's got a chunk of Iran. In fact, the peace of Iran, just for people who are curious, the peace of Iran that they have is actually a special Kurdistani province in Iran. I mean, the Iranians were smart enough to realize they needed a certain amount of self-rule or they wouldn't be happy campers. And so they're actually not at war with the Iranians because the Iranians gave them most of what they wanted for the time being. The Turkish government has been fighting them like, like terrorists all these years, which is silly. They're just a, uh, it's a border war. And the, um, and the Syrians, of course, have, be, have abandoned northern Syria where the Kurds are because the Kurdish army is much stronger than the, than the uprising and stronger than the central government. And, of course, now it's grown its size, its footprint, to more Kurdish communities in the country of Iraq. Now, I want you to read that article, folks, when it comes out with the show notes. And the reason is the logic behind that article written seven years ago was absolutely accurate. What it predicted absolutely came true. And, and, when I, and why I'm so proud of it is because I want people to realize that the conflict between the Shia and the Sunni, which is going on in Iraq and in Syria, that incredible conflict that we think of as a Syrian, Iraqi, and maybe eventually an Afghanistani and Iranian conflict, that's been going on for 1,400 years. That started with the death of Muhammad. On his deathbed, there was a general and his nephew. The general basically said, I'm the heir to Muhammad. The nephew claims that Muhammad said to him in the presence of the general, here's my heir, which would make sense because in those days the lineage of kings and, or caliphs in those days, the caliphate was the kingdom for a Muslim, the caliphs would, 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 would turn their kingdom over to their nearest kin. So it made sense that the nephew was probably next in line. However, the general said, that's not what I heard, and declared war on the nephew. The general was the first Sunni. The nephew was the first Shia or Shiite. And they have been at war since then, there's an excellent book, if you really want to know about it, I quoted in the article called The Shia Revival, which talks about how the Shiites has been the underdog of the Arab community all these years and how, in fact, uh, they're now coming into their own power. Iraq, and we'll touch on this briefly when we get to oil later, Iraq is a situation where the only solution is to separate the Sunni and the Shia and let them run two separate countries so that the Shia, who have been, that's Nouri al-Maliki, who we left in power in Baghdad, but who was appointed by the Iranians, who's Shia. So the Shiite Iranians appoint Malik, Malaki. He's trying to run the whole country. He suppresses the Sunnis. He creates devastating uh, attacks on them. Uh, the Sunnis then rise up in rebellion, as they have also done in Syria. And between the two of them, they're constantly at war. Whereas if the Shia had their own nation southern Iraq and Iran, which is really one country, and the Sunnis had their own nation, northern Iraq and part of Syria, then they could 
go back to living together with each other like they did for 1,400 years, where they had their own separate countries. It's that the West tried to force them into one country, and there are no Iraqi people. There are three separate peoples forced into one envelope called Iraq, which was made up by Winston Churchill and has no logic for any reason. So I want to share that with you, because the article was timely. Now, if we look at every major geopolitical challenge on the face of the planet, if we look at every issue related to finance and global finance, if we look at every issue relating to the economy, if we look at every issue relating to renewable energy and the necessity for us eliminating fossil fuels and nuclear, if we look at every single one of those issues, there is an incredibly logical solution to all of them. Every single one of them can be very logically resolved. What's stopping us is the lack of will. So what I'm asking the people who are listening to this to not only pass this along to their friends, I'm saying, look, let's not be like the people in Place de la Concorde that were guillotining their leadership till along comes a dictator named Napoleon Bonaparte to take us out of this mess. Let's not descend to basically what's happened in Egypt, the reassertion of military dictatorship, what's happened in country after country. And let's, let's see if we can't reach towards solutions which are logical, life-affirming, and, and even-handed in the distribution of wealth and benefits. Let's raise our education levels, not lower them, as we've done in the United States for the last 15 years. Let's raise our standard of living for our, our, our least, um, our, our least well-paid workers, but who still work 40-hour weeks, from below poverty lines to a, back to a middle-class income so that we can, in fact, have people raise their families and send them off to advanced education and not be in debt to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans, which, by the way, just two days ago, or yesterday was, the Republicans in the Senate blocked Senator Elizabeth Warren's law to rationalize student loans so that we wouldn't be gouging the next generation of students with interest rates we don't even charge ourselves for home mortgages. That was stopped in the Senate by the Republicans. That's unconscionable. It's wrong. We all ought to be up in arms over it. We have to educate the next generation, and we can't do it at, at, to the extent where they have, they're so indebted they're bankrupt for the rest of their lives. So anyway, I want to just throw in the, the, the Iraqi situation. So when you read about it, you know, that Mosul has been lost to the rebels. Actually, no, Mosul was always Sunni. It's, for a while, the American military might forced the Sunnis underground, but they were never loyal to Baghdad or the Shiites. They were always their own separate Sunni stand, supported, right. by the way, with money from all the other Sunni nations like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, etc. Anyways, that's, that, that's my, my geopolitical riff for today. On, on Iraq, Ronaldo, the, the other piece to throw in there is that the, the reason the Sunnis went quiet and allowed the United States to essentially stop fighting and actually begin extraditing itself from that situation was because we were directly paying them. We were paying the, the, them to the tune, I don't remember the exact amount, but it was a significant, more than a, a normal living in Iraq, essentially bribing them to stop fighting us. And now that we're gone, the country has fallen back into the situation that you're describing where the Sunnis and the Shia are at each other's throats. Um, I'm not optimistic about the situation there. Uh, and as you say, it plays into global oil prices. And it also plays into the Syria conflict where we see the 
the rebellion and the ongoing civil war in Syria spreading to Mosul, and the, the lines are breaking down. So I think that essentially, if we had had some sort of ordered transition to three you know, separate states, as you say, that would have been a much better plan than essentially letting it fall apart and reorganize itself uh, naturally, because there's going to be a, an, an amazing amount of blood uh, shed as we, as we go down that path. And it continues to point back to the, the crazy uh, uh, and, and totally disastrous foreign policy decision to invade Iraq and destabilize the region um, under some auspices of keeping oil flowing. And in fact, we've seen that Iraqi oil has stayed offline and continues to be stagnant. So even the economic... Actually, no, levels, actually, no, on, on, on the oil flow, that part worked. The national oil, international oil companies got what they wanted. Iraq's been producing about 2.5 to 2.75 million barrels a day of oil. And those oil supplies, by the way, come from southern Iraq, far below Baghdad, Basra right. primarily. And so that 2.5 million barrels is probably fairly safe, at least 2 million of it at least. But it's uh, not near its potential of where they no, thought no, Iraq no, was going to be, the second Saudi Arabia. No, no, but I think that the, that, 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 that the goal of the oil companies, which was to get that oil flowing for them because they couldn't get it from Saddam, uh, the international oil cartel basically won the Iraqi war because it got what it wanted. And, and if you look at the companies, for example, seven major oil companies are in Kurdistan right now and are drilling like crazy, and they're doing over – they're on their way to a million barrels a day, I'm pretty sure, in Kurdistan. And if, if you were to consider Kurdistan a separate country, which the Kurds do, and frankly I do, uh, that is probably the sixth largest oil reserve batch in the world right now. So we're talking serious oil reserves are coming out of the Kurdistan. It's very stabilized. It's not – there's no war going on in Kurdistan. And – and there won't be because their army is quite effective. You know, the reason why the army of Basra, the army of the Baghdad, the, the, the Malikis, the reason they fled when uh, Mosul was attacked is in part because of the corruption of Baghdad. I mean, we went along with Iran appointing the guy who would run Iraq, even though we'd had this huge fight. And it was amazing. So we turned it over to a guy who's corrupt, who's Iranian, <laughs> supposedly our enemy, I mean, and, and we walk away expecting that by some miracle it's going to hold together. What were we dreaming? Of course it wouldn't hold together. That was, that was obvious, and that's what this article said in 2007. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. There's got to be guys much smarter than me in Washington somewhere who could have figured this out themselves. <laughs> no, seriously. Uh, hey, you I know you're generous. <laughs> <laughs> I've lived in D.C., <laughs> I'm not sure about that. There's solutions to this stuff which do, you don't have to be a genius. You just have to be willing to be thoughtful and, frankly, be neutral. Come from neutral. Just right. look well, at the data. That's the big difference. Everyone in D.C. has an agenda. And, you know, people used to refer to Paul Wolfowitz as the smartest guy in D.C., which is shocking in retrospect. Um, I pulled the numbers and you're right. time, by the way. I mean, it's amazing. It's unbelievable. But that's well, and you know, your point about the media is is well taken. That essentially, the the inside the Beltway media is its own animal, and all they care about are the ins and outs of Washington politics, which never make any sense, and are just full of incredibly cynical uh, assumptions. So that reflects their in their reporting. Um, they never zoom out and take a look at the whole picture, and that's uh, one of, one of the great things I think that we do on this show. So. Thank you for that. Um, on the international front, there's more to talk about here, Ronaldo. We had talked about uh, India and the, the new prime minister wait, there. What number, uh, Matt, Matt, what number did yes. you pull? What number did you pull? You, started, you pulled some numbers. What number? Oh, I was looking at the uh, Iraq oil 
uh, output. And oh, okay. it looks like it was just 2012 when it became when it went back over the 2000 peak. So in 2000 they had uh, 2 million 2.57 million barrels of oil, and in 2012 they got up to 2.98 million barrels. And I think 2013 is probably higher than that. But you're right. So they they are now back on track above pre-war production, but that just started in 2011. Okay. Um, would you like to talk about uh, the new prime minister in India? Does that make sense to do now? Oh, yeah. Uh, Narendra Modi. Uh, okay, so Narendra Modi is the new prime minister of India. Uh, this may be the most exciting thing that's happened since Gandhi died in 1949, 48. Um, the, the, uh, Modi is, it was for more than a decade, I believe, was the head of a the most successful advanced province of India, Gujarat. Uh, he is a Hindu nationalist. He has been a lifelong celibate. He is uh, what some people in the in Hindu religion would call a sannyasa, meaning a renunciate. He, he doesn't choose to have individual power and wealth in the conventional sense or even a family. In fact, said the reason he would never marry is because he didn't want to be conflicted between providing for his family and providing for his country. He's an interesting character. I was nervous because there's been some talk uh, for many years now about uh, there was a pogrom in Gujarat where a couple thousand Muslims were killed, and some of the blame was laid at Modi's feet. And so I was very curious when Modi started looking like he might be the next prime minister of India. Which remember, is 850. Eight million people, I think, are voters in India. I mean, it, it, it's by far the largest democracy in the world. And when it looked like Modi was going to win, I called some very close friends in India who are impeccable in terms of personal integrity, and I asked them, "What do you know about this guy Modi? And what do you, what do you think? Because I'm wondering, was he responsible?" And the response I got back was, "Oh no, no, he's the real deal. He, this is the guy who actually he's doing that for all the right reasons. He's not he." Hindu nationalist that wants to destroy the Muslims who live in India. To the contrary, he's a Hindu nationalist that wants India to succeed as a nation. And you're going to see some wonderful things with this guy. Well, I got that, I had that phone call, sorry, serious phone calls and emails uh, before his inauguration and was delighted to see his first official act is he invited the Prime Minister of Pakistan, India's longtime enemy, the former basically half of India that split off. He invited him to the inauguration. And to the Pakistani Prime Minister's credit, he came. Uh, Modi's first couple of weeks in office have been really exciting. Uh, he's starting to say and do the things that India desperately needs, which is to get its bureaucracy under control, to develop its infrastructure, and to modernize its economy, and start to close its gap between the rich and poor, which has gotten much worse than, than the speed at which its gap has grown, has been much faster even than even the United States. So I'm really excited that the largest democracy in the world has apparently elected somebody who wasn't just named the right name, because up until now, India's basically been ruled by one party, uh, the Congress Party, and it, it, which was started by Gandhi and Nehru, and, and, and um, they've really, you know, they've gotten tired over the years. Um, they, they've, had, they've produced numerous prime ministers, and they've controlled the politics of India. And they, like any institution that got too old and too calcified, they stopped being relevant. And it's great that Modi is there in charge now. So it looks to me like I'm going to see some really exciting economic lift in India, which is going to help China, by the way. Uh, China recently did a very smart thing in my mind. They're taking some flack. I think it's inappropriately being stated. 
that China's spending on infrastructure could it could lead to a rise in the debt bubble. Totally false. China's doing exactly what it needs to do. They're very smart. They're trying to take the air gently out of the, the housing bubble, which is a bubble. They don't want to collapse, but it's coming down fast. And they're taking and putting a lot of money into infrastructure so the people who used to be construction workers on tall buildings are now building more roads and highways. And just to let you know how fast infrastructure can produce economic gains, China went from having no high-speed rail to having the most high-speed rail of any country in the world by far in 10 years flat. That high-speed rail, according to some friends of mine who just took it between uh, Shanghai and Beijing, is the most efficient, comfortable, an effective way to transport people and goods between those two cities. So it's infrastructure, as we learned in America when we built the railroads that linked the east and the west, as we learned in America when we built the Eisenhower, the interstate highway system, infrastructure, when you do it right, becomes an extraordinary catalyst to economic activity that we have delayed and avoided infrastructure building for so long is quite remarkable. And um, one of my favorite uh, news commentators, John Stewart, certainly the funniest one, uh, commented on a show just two nights ago that we've got all these veterans coming back from Iraq and Iran and from Iraq and Afghanistan and they're looking for jobs and they're trained because they were trying to rebuild, we tried to rebuild Iraq as you recall by and getting blown up while we were doing it because the people there didn't want us there why don't we have them do the same thing in America why don't we build the infrastructure in America that we spent three trillion dollars trying to do in the Middle East so I think John's point is really well taken. If we bring the soldiers home and we give them really good uh, middle income and above jobs, we'd be doing now for our current military what we were smart enough to do after World War II. Time to do it again. And infrastructure would be the way to go. So I see China's infrastructure spending is a good thing. I do not think it's going to be creating an inflationary spiral. I think it will help to offset the housing bubble. I think with India's new election of Modi, it will lead to more strength and more economic growth for those two nations. It will feed China, and China will feed it in turn. And I think it it bodes very well for the global economy uh, for the next uh, two to five years. Ronaldo, another actually infrastructure-related concept that uh, you asked that we include on today's show is the uh, construction of an ocean thermal energy conversion, or OTEC, platform in the Marshall Islands. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, um, I'm really delighted. I don't think it's actually been formally signed. It's been announced but not signed. Uh, I know one of the participants in that, a couple, two of the participants in that. It's being done by a gentleman who's in his mid-80s named Mr. Yi, who's one of the foremost civilian uh, platform constructors in the world. He, he built an, a, a, a platform uh, for exploration of, uh, in cold areas made out of pre-stressed concrete, which 40 years later is still in use today in the Arctic. I'm against Arctic drilling, but it's amazing that Mr. Yee's floating barge is what they have to use because it's so strong and can withstand ice being formed around it and it doesn't get crushed. Right. Uh, Mr. Yee has proposed to build a barge, which is going to be installed off the Marshall Islands. Now, that's important because the Marshall Islands is going to sink beneath the ocean waves, certainly within the next 20 years. So it would be a shame to build a plant that's going to cost several hundred millions of dollars and have to abandon it when the ocean takes it back. Because it's built on a floating barge, which also makes it more efficient because it can be in water that's very, very hot at the bottom of the, uh, at the top of the ocean near the equator and very, very cold at the bottom, three miles or more where the pipe goes to the pulls up the cold water. That difference between cold water at the bottom of the ocean and hot water at the top of the ocean 
is called ocean thermal energy conversion, meaning you take the temperature differential, and as, that, as the temperature gets warmer as you go to the surface, liquid ammonia typically is released, and it becomes more and more of a gas and thinner and thinner and rises faster and faster until it gets to the top of the arc, and it starts turning the turbine blades. And as it turns the turbine blades to create electricity, it's, it gets cooled enough to start falling down the other pipe, and as it starts to fall into cooler and cooler and cooler and cooler and cooler water, it becomes liquid again at the bottom, and then they repump it like a giant radiator. That technology was working effectively in the 1970s, and it was disassembled by basically, the story goes, which I think is true, that Bechtel told the federal government to take it apart because it was going to conflict with their desires to build nuclear energy in the 70s, and therefore it was too good a technology to leave in place, and that the government should take and dismantle it, which they did. Now, what's fascinating is the excuse they gave is that it wouldn't be efficient if oil wasn't at least $40 a barrel. Well, as you know, oil hasn't been $40 a barrel in a very long time, and it was sitting today, West Texas Intermediate Crude was sitting at $105 a barrel today. So this thing is economic at $40 to $50 a barrel, but it's still never been put back online by the federal government. The first new plant ever is coming online in the Marshall Islands uh, when that agreement is signed. It's amazing. It really is. And, uh, you know, we, we are strong believers in the technology at the Academy because we see it as a potential uh, mechanism for creating renewable hydrogen and renewable energy uh, that is much needed for California and the whole planet. So we're, we'll be watching that one closely and report back when we hear more. Um, Ronaldo, another yeah, by the way, on that one, there's, there's a professor named Hans Kroc, who's, who's the leading authority in the world, I think, on geothermal, who will be participating as an Academy witness in the long-term power procurement planning hearings here in California, where we are doing the California moonshot. That, uh, uh, I've been to Honolulu. I've met with the Dr. Kroc uh, and, and uh, with uh, Mr. Yee's son, who runs the construction side. And uh, we're very excited about uh, what OTEC could be as a contributor to uh, 100% renewable energy revolutionizing the planet. And one of the nice things about OTEC, uh, Matt, is the hotter the surface water gets, which is what's happening because of climate change, the more efficient OTEC is. So it's yeah. one of the few technologies which actually gets better as the planet heats. Uh, on that note, I want to just do a quick, uh, a quick message to our listeners here. Uh, this, this show continues to grow because many of you are passing the link and the email to friends and family. Uh, we would love your input, and we'd love you to keep doing that. Um, so please do write into us at info at worldbusiness.org to give us feedback, ask questions, and to tell us that you are sharing the show and listening. We appreciate hearing from you, and uh, we look forward to answering your questions on the air in the future. Uh, Ronaldo, I wanted to do a few minutes here on the U.S. economic out outlook. What are you seeing now? Well, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. You know, there's some mixed data uh, that came in from May. Uh, for example, um, U.S. retail sales uh, came up in May, but n not by the consensus estimate. There had been a forecast of about a six-tenth of a percent rise in retail sales, and that did not happen, which is kind of interesting all by itself because, uh, you know, if you take a 0.6 uh, percent estimate of increase and you multiply it by 12, meaning you get it 12 months in a row, that would equal a 7.2% rise in retail spending. I think that was high. And, I, and everybody listening to the show knows I've been projecting 25 to 3.2% growth for this year at most. So 7.2% growth in retail sales I never thought was real. And so I'm actually happy 
that it that it they advanced by half of that, which is three tenths of a percent. So if you take that number again and you what you do what's called annualize it, so you t- you multiply 0.3 times 12, what do you get? Well, you get the number 3.6 percent, which is what I'd expect retail sales to grow if my projection of two and a half to three point two percent for the year is right. And by the way, I've 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 revised uh, up until this last election, which happened with Eric Cantor, I had revised my estimate up to closer to the three percent than the two point five. Uh, I got to see now what's going to happen in Washington as a result of the Cantor election because I think the the news media is reading that whole thing wrong, and since they are, I'm not sure uh, whether or not we're going to have the worst uh, loggerheads we've ever seen or if some of the Republicans are going to become rational and realize that their base may be closer to the middle than it is at the extremes and actually be willing to move the economy forward. Because clearly Cantor got hit from the right at a time when um, he was already right. So going further to the right clearly is not the solution. Anyway, I think that that uh, retail sales uh, number is good. I'm real happy with it. I'm also happy with the number some people are complaining about, uh, Matt. People were complaining that um, the um, the number of fresh claims for unemployment jumped um, <clears throat> to 317,000 from 313,000 the week before. Now, why am I pleased about that? Because 4,000 new people entering the workforce is about right demographically. It means that people are showing up to get a job as they are getting old enough to have a job. And I think that's a really key number because one of the numbers that's always misquoted are the people who aren't looking for work, who, 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 who are perceived to be unable to get a job. And that number is completely getting to be bogus because so many people are over 65 now. If you can afford to retire even modestly and you're 65, 68, 70 years old, most people will choose to do that rather than get a job for $7 an hour at McDonald's flipping burgers. So, so the age wave, the, 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 the retirement of this massive baby boom population of which I am part, which is now just starting, is what's tending to skew the numbers of who used to have jobs but doesn't anymore. Because anyone over 65 who doesn't have a job that did have one five years ago probably is not choosing to have one at this point or is choosing not to do it at the low prices that they would be able to make. So I'm really I'm 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 pleased with this 317,000. And by the way, just to give you some idea, that's dramatically below where we were. I mean, it's like not even a third of where we were at initial jobless claims back in 2009, 2010, etc. So we've had a steady, consistent improvement over the job and the job hitch situation. And we've now got more people working, both in the private and public sector, to combine than we did before the Great Recession. And what's amazing about that is we've never recovered the lost jobs in the public sector. So the private sector not only had to hire enough people to replace the ones it lost, it had to hire all the public sector jobs that were lost, which we've now done. So I'm looking very comfortably at the 25 to 3.2% GDP growth for the year. I think it would be closer to 3 if the Republicans don't go crazy. If the Republicans go crazy in Congress, who knows what's going to happen. I'll have to look at it when it happens. But um, that's where we are today. Other things on the horizon in the economy – uh, clearly, inflation is starting to pick up steam. Uh, it came out of the manufacturing purchasers uh, report about two weeks ago. Uh, it also came out, uh, it, it looks to me like uh, it's a healthy thing. 
that you've got places like Seattle that have pushed the minimum wage to $15. California's pushed it to 10 and a half over a three-year period. Other states are doing the same thing. So uh, what you're going to see is more and more states passing a livable wage or at least a higher wage, which is approaching livable. And I want to say this to everybody listening. You know, folks, the United States is so wealthy, it is inconceivable to me that we would have a country where somebody could work a 40-hour week and be below the poverty line. That is morally offensive. It's also bad economics. It doesn't make sense economically. Because if the 1% makes an extra million dollars this year, they're not going to spend that million. They're just going to buy something. Whereas if the bottom 75, 80% makes an extra $10,000, they'll spend every nickel, and that will cause the economy to grow dramatically. So raising the minimum wage, good thing, leads to much stronger economic growth. I believe we're going to see some modest inflation. Uh, I believe what the oil companies are doing right now to manipulate oil prices will cause additional inflation, no question about it. Uh, and, 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 and do you want me to just explain what they're doing to manipulate oil prices? Yeah, that sounds good. We can go into oil here. I have it in the lightning round as well, but we can do it now. Well, it's real simple. It's, it, it's, um, so the, the price of oil for Brent Intermediate, uh, which is the North Sea, is now over $112 a barrel as a result of Iraq. It just went up three more bucks on Iraq. West Texas Intermediate is around 105 as I said earlier. So you still got a $7 spread, which is remarkably high, given that the cost of transporting between the two is less than $7 a barrel. Um, and what's going on is simply this. The oil companies, although there's been not one drop of oil lost in Iraq from this Mosul issue, the oil companies are using fear to raise their prices on the barrel of oil. Saudi Arabia and Russia are cooperating because both countries survive on the price of oil. And when it gets to $112 a barrel, that means $12 of profit that Putin can spend as opposed to the $100 he needs just to keep alive. The Saudis are the same way. They need $100 a barrel just to break even. So that last 12 bucks is really, quote, profit, pure profit, which they can then put into their sovereign wealth funds in Russia and, 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 uh, and, and uh, Saudi Arabia. So what you're seeing is another massive theft from the global population. There is no reason on earth why the prices would be that high. Um, and the oil companies point to instability and loss of full production in Nigeria. That's a story that's 15 years old. They point to... Um, uh, they don't ever talk about the increased pumping out of Kurdistan, by the way. Uh, they never talk about the amount of oil that's coming online uh, in other places. Uh, they always talk about Venezuela. So what they do is they fan the flames of discontent, just like Madame Lafarge in the French Revolution, just like uh, Graham uh, is doing in, did in, in the Cantor, right? And Ingram, rather. And, and, and um, what they're doing is using that fear to drive the price of oil up so they suck more money out of the global economy, which then impoverishes all of us because we have to pay for it, and we lose the spending power. So every time you spend a dollar on a, on a, on a gallon of gas, you're losing $5 that could have gone into the domestic economy just to enrich some petro uh, countries or petro oligarchs. Uh, so my goal uh, in this comment is to tell you that you may see some temporary rise in oil, as we just saw today. The long term for oil continues to be where I said it was a month ago. I am a seller, even if you didn't want to do it for moral reasons. Divest your oil stocks. They're close to the peak. In fact, at 112, the chances will go up further is really, really small. 
although they can manufacture fear to get there. But sooner or later, that will come down. So I'm a net seller of those oil company stocks today, and I think the same thing will happen in due course to natural gas. Instead, invest in those technologies like Walmart announced just two weeks ago. Walmart is now buying fuel cells for their own use because they're cheaper to run than being hooked to the electrical grid, and they're more, and they're more reliable. That's the future, fuel cells, not fossil fuels. So let's go into the lightning round now with a couple of quick hits on uh, commodities and, and different asset classes that you think are uh, are looking good or give us your, your take on. Let's do uh, real estate, bonds, stocks, and gold. Okay, real estate, you're going to see continued upward pressure in most American markets in real estate. Um, the only thing that's going to upset that is climate change issues market by market. But by and large, you're going to see continued growth. Uh, I believe by the end of this year, you'll see higher interest rates. So your time to buy a single-family home it couldn't be better right now. The market is going to get more expensive to buy it, and the cost of the money is going to get more expensive. So I think residential real estate will continue to grow and will be a, a good growth sector for the economy. Commercial real estate, as I've been saying on this program for the last four or five months, was continue to pick up steam. It continues to pick up steam. It will continue to be a great investment, as will be multi-unit dwellings. In other words, um, being able to own something that has more than one dwelling unit in it will be great because you'll be able to rent it because too few people can afford their first home. And one of the reasons is the cost of real estate. Another reason is how little we pay people. And the third reason, the, one of the biggest ones is that so many young people come out of college with astronomical amounts of student debt, they can't afford the down payment. So we have a, we have a, a crisis, if you will, in that we aren't creating new household formations as fast as we need to, and yet people still need a place to live, so apartment dwelling or rental units are rising in demand. So if you own a, a rental unit, you're going to be able to extract more rent for it because there's fewer of them, and as a result, as a landlord, you'll be making more money because you have the capital and the young person coming out of college doesn't. I think that's broken. I think it's wrong, but that's the reality we're facing. Um, that's real estate. I think uh, in terms of bonds, uh, there's something weird happening in the bond market right now, which I want to focus people on. Uh, treasuries should be going down. They should not be going up in price because interest rates are clearly going to go lower. And just last week, the ECB, European Community Bank, basically went to negative interest rates to stimulate the European economy, which is working brilliantly because if you remember a year ago, Matt, when Spain couldn't sell its debt and it was going to collapse, remember that? Yep. Remember that? They just floated a $9 billion Spanish bond to replace expensive short-term debt. And they did it in one – basically in an hour it was done. And they did it wow. at a, a rate of around 2.6% or something. It was just incredible. Uh, Portugal just this week declined 2.6 billion euros of support from the European community because they didn't want any more strings attached, and Portugal's now solvent. So, so the, the, the European Union has muddled through a combination of luck and pluck and some factors that we pointed out on this show and um, is not currently in jeopardy, although I think the seeds of long-term destruction are still there. And I think that the problem with euro is not going to go away, as we said in our last book on the subject, Money and Sustainability. So the problem with the euro will continue to haunt it, but for the time being, the crisis has passed in Europe, and they're now actually worried about deflation more than they're worried about inflation, so they're trying to create a little inflationary pressure. Uh, that's the bond thing. So most sophisticated bond people that I know 
say that it's fear driving the bond market. There's no reason for U.S. Treasuries to be going up in value. They should be coming down in value. But people are sort of flooding into U.S. Treasuries because there's so much instability in the world. Um, so we did that. We did oil. What was the other one? Gold? Stocks and gold, yeah. Okay, gold. Um, I still would not be a gold buyer yet. I don't think there's enough inflationary pressure yet. Keep listening to the show every month. We'll tell you when it's time to buy or get into gold if you're one of those people who believes in gold for part of your portfolio to hedge against inflation. But those days are not here yet, so I continue to see gold going sideways or down. Don't see a huge upswing. Not worth investing your money there. It's not worth the aggravation. Now let's talk about stocks. I continue to be pleased at how well some stocks, the dividend-paying stocks particularly, are doing. I think they will continue. By the way, uh, on the World Business Academy Advised Fund that we announced last month, Matt, yeah. Uh, I just found out yesterday that um, that the fund is really reflecting what we're saying on the show. So there's an extremely less than 10%. I said bonds. It turns out it's around 7% and dropping. And those are just you know petering out as we replace them with other things. Um, we've had a, a really good. We, we don't own a single fossil fuel stock directly in that fund. Uh, we're we're getting good returns. If people are interested in uh, participating in the, the Business Academy uh, Advised Fund, it's run by a company which I have tremendous respect for, First Affirmative. That fund is personally supervised by the chairman of the board and CEO of First Affirmative, George Gay, and he's assisted in that by Steve Sheath, the president of First Affirmative. I talk to them at least once a month to update them on academy uh, economic and macro- macroeconomic principles. Uh, a couple people called in from our last show interested in uh, putting money with that. We will put them together with First Affirmative. The World Business Academy does not receive a penny in sponsorship or any economic benefit whatsoever from putting people into that First Affirmative fund. I'm grateful that George decided to build a fund that, that, that basically incorporates the values I talk about on the show, the fundamentals of the economy, and invests people's money even when they don't have a ton of it. Uh, they invested in ways that I believe will grow, and it is growing. Uh, the goal for that fund is to preserve capital and to grow at three to five percent a year. So, in a world where you get one percent if you're lucky, three to five percent is real good. And I'm delighted that they're doing it with stability, with a great balanced portfolio. They're great guys, and I've put some money with them there on the fund. I think you know my savings. I recommend everybody do the same on this show. And we'll be happy to put you in touch. Call our office or send us an email, and we'll get you in touch with the people at First Affirmative to do that. Again, we are not a broker-dealer. We are not receiving compensation for this. We are not getting a commission. Uh, they're not even a sponsor of the show, although I think they should be. They're not a sponsor of the show. So there's no economic benefit coming to the Academy. We're strictly doing this as a public service, so you'll have a safe place to put your money with people I trust with mine. Uh, the last one is stocks, and, and, and I'm pleased to say, as I said in the show previously, we've continued to beef up on our stock portfolio in that, in that fund. Uh, we like dividend-paying stocks. Uh, we like them for two reasons. First of all, you can get a nice 3% or more dividend from a number of companies that are stable, solid, been doing it for many decades. We think that's great. We also like it because um, as, in, as inflation picks up, which will eventually, the stock market is likely to continue rising to beat inflation. And as the stock market continues rising in minus way, minor ways, it's not going to be big spurts, but it'll be just continually moving along. What you'll see is that those dividend-paying stocks will continue to grow in, in the capital appreciation as well as the dividends. So I'm um, real happy about that, and I'm glad that the fund's doing so well, and uh, urge everybody to contact us who'd like to be a participant in it, and I'll leave it at that. Anything else, Matt? 
Thanks, Ronaldo. A great show today. And on behalf of the World Business Academy, thank you for listening. We'll be back next month with another episode of New Business Paradigms, conscious commentary on business and society. Send us your questions. If you've got something you'd like us to focus on, we love hearing from you. And please tell your friends. Thanks, for everybody, for listening. Thank you, Matt.